Premier Christian Newscast. It's not only the Church of England that's been having big synods recently. Throughout October, hundreds of bishops and others from the Catholic Church gathered in Rome for their own synod. But unlike the regular twice-yearly meetings that the C of E has had for decades, this synod is a much larger and rarer event. It's all part of Pope Francis's efforts to erode the hierarchical nature of the Catholic Church and shift its culture towards one where the voices of ordinary churchgoers are more prominent. Conservatives fear this is the beginning of a process which could see traditional doctrines around women's ordination, priestly celibacy and gay relationships abandoned for good. But the Vatican insists that this is actually all about what they call synodality, a new way of doing church together, rather than immediately moving to debate the hot-button issues which divide Catholics. I'm Tim Wyatt, and this is the Premier Christian Newscast. This week, we're digging into the Catholic Synod and how it may shape the future of the Catholic Church, by far the world's largest and perhaps its only truly global denomination for the rest of the century to come. We'll be joined by Catholic journalists, commentators and theologians who've been involved throughout the lengthy synod process to explain how and why Francis began this controversial project and why it actually took place at the Vatican when the bishops, clergy and lay people in the synod finally got round the table together. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for, for joining us on the show. Um, before we begin the discussion, could I ask each of you to, to briefly introduce yourself? Um, Austin, why don't you go first? Sure. Austin Ivory. Um, I've been involved in the synod process uh, at various stages uh, in the uh, helping to draw up the document from England and Wales. And then just I've just come back from Rome, where I was at the Assembly of the Synod of Bishops. I'm a journalist and writer and a biographer of Pope Francis. Good to be with you. Brilliant. Thank you for joining us. Um, Jill, what about you? My name is Jill Goulding. I'm a sister of the Congregation of Jesus. I've, uh, I teach at the University of Toronto, Jesuit Graduate School there. And I also have an associate, a research, uh, uh, sorry, a senior research associate at the Von Hugel Institute in Cambridge. I was appointed by Carlin Greck in April 2021 to the Theological Commission for the Synod and have been working away on it, um, various documents from the beginning. I wasn't at the Synod Assembly, but I continue on on the commission. Uh, I think I should have perhaps just said, I just had um, I, a book published on Pope Francis and Mercy, which came out in September and was launched by the um, British Ambassadors to the Holy See uh, last week, which I believe the whole sinful process, his, his whole understanding of mercy. Thank you. And last but not least, Catherine. Okay. Uh, I'm Catherine Pepinster. I'm a journalist and author. I was editor of The Tablet, the Catholic Weekly, for 13 years. And I now write regularly for uh, various publications about religion. Uh, one of the books I've written was called The Keys and the Kingdom, The British and the Papacy from John Paul II to Francis. And I did not participate in the synod uh, hearings in Rome, but I have participated as an ordinary uh, member of the Catholic Church via my parish. Fantastic. Well, thank you all three of you for joining us on, on the podcast. I'm really pleased to have such a cracking panel to, to talk through this, this, which could be potentially a little bit daunting topic for those who are not familiar with it. Um, as far as I understand, synods aren't a particularly kind of major feature of recent Catholic history. Is, is that fair to say? Where, where, did the, uh, where did this particular synod come from? Is it very much Pope Francis's kind of new idea? Um, Austin, I'll ask you that one. 
Yeah, so, well, synods, of course, have a very long history in the church. I mean, there were lots of them in the first centuries of the church. The first one, of course, famously in, described in chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles, which became known as the Council of Jerusalem. But for the first sort of 800 years of the church's life, there were always councils and synods across the, across the Christian world. In the Catholic church, they fell out, really, of, of use uh, in the Middle Ages at some point, uh, and it's a complex history, but really uh, the church became less and less used to holding these gatherings of consultations and discernments with ordinary people, and it became much more concentrated, just like you know the world in general, con- concentrated in, in, in hierarchy and in authorities and centralised decision-making. The big change uh, in, the, in our lifetimes came in as a result of the 1960s, in the Second Vatican Council, after which Pope Paul VI reinstituted, that's the formula anyway, the, the Synod of Bishops. So when we talk about the Synod in the Catholic Church, we are, have always been talking, until recently at least, about synods that were exclusively of bishops, even though they might involve other people. Now, under Pope Francis, the synod has been through various changes. It's been opened up and reformed in, in many, many, many different ways to make it a much freer process, a much more authentic process. Process of, of discernment, where people, where, which is capable really of changing things, um, but it's still been a synod of bishops until 2021, when the Catholic Church launched this so-called synod on synodality, which began for the first time with assemblies and meetings of ordinary people in dioceses and parishes across the world. I've been saying, and nobody's yet contradicted me, this is the history's biggest ever consultation uh, because it was global. Uh, And even though the numbers who took part were small as percentages of the practicing Catholic population, they were still unprecedented involvement of ordinary people. And then it's been through various stages uh, since then. Uh, But the uh, Synod of Bishops, which has just been held in Rome, which is part of this process, for the first time included 25% non-bishops. So people who were members of religious orders, lay people, uh, clergy, deacons. So uh, we're now, I would say, in a whole new phase of the development or the implementation of of the synod. And we're calling this, and it's a new term, synodality, a way of being, a way of proceeding, a culture, if you like, uh, in the church. So what this process is all about, this particular synod, which is more than just an event, it's a process, is about rediscovering for the modern world this ancient habit or practice of, of synodality. Perhaps one thing that might actually help your listeners to have a sense of that, just in a physical way, um, I was at the 2012 Synod of Bishops as a so-called theological expert, and there we sat in the Synod Hall in serried ranks, as it were, um, by order of, uh, I'm not sure, hierarchy really, rather than meritocracy, and uh, so, so it's cardinals and archbishops and bishops and such like. And then on our side, there were members from different um, ecclesial uh, communities. Um, and then you had the theologians and they went from the priests the way back and the sisters were in the road just before the back and the lay people were right at the back. Like it gives you a sort of sense of, of things there. And the difference in movement then is for this little assembly following on the practice that began in the local churches and moved then, as it were, through the conferences and such, you had a gathering that included people around round tables. And because there were so many more people involved, uh, they couldn't be anyway in that synod hall. So they were in the larger Paul VI hall, which is where the Pope often has his... um, our audiences on a Wednesday if either it's too hot in the summer or too cold in the winter. But you so you see the sort of transition from one image to the other. I think that that might assist people in their understanding too. Hmm. And Catherine, you said that you'd actually been involved in some of the local gatherings, the local consultations for your own parish and diocese in the build-up. What is your sense of how kind of ordinary lay Catholics have been engaged? Have they kind of been captured by Pope Francis's big idea about synodality? Well, I think that that those of them who've heard about it have, but uh, not necessarily everybody did hear about it. Unfortunately, the the interest in in the synod 
has been has been varied. So there have been Catholics who've, who've come forward and said, "Well, we didn't have anything about it in our parish." Um, so, so that so the response to it has has been mixed, and the the ordinary Catholics, in a way, their their sort of a, a ability to get involved was affected by uh, the, the the these ecclesiastical figures that you know, we're all talking about. Um, so. That's a bit of an irony, really, about about the synod that it that it's supposed to be about you know making the church uh, a, more of a listening church and 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 getting greater involvement of, of laity as well as priests and bishops. But some of them weren't welcomed into that process. If they were welcomed into it, they seemed to really appreciate it and and feel that it, it was a, it was a great opportunity. So so that's a good thing. But not everybody getting that opportunity uh, wasn't a good thing. I mean, it was it was very striking in this in the first part of the synod, which involved ordinary people, how so much depended on your diocese or your parish. Also, the particular attitude the bishop of the diocese took towards it. It was the time of COVID, and many of them uh, said, "Oh well, because of COVID, we can't meet in person, so we would have we'll have online meetings." And in some cases, they had sort of online questionnaires as if it were an opinion survey. So the experience was enormously varied, as Catherine was saying. But I was very struck. I mean, Jill and I were together in a place called Frascati in September 2022. And our job was to read all the bishops' conference reports from across the world. So we have to remember that this is a, we're in a global church. Um, and, you know, Africa, Asia, Latin America, Oceania, Middle East, all these different reports. And again, you know, the, the, the difference of experience was remarkable. But what really came through was that those who did take part and who were invited to, to speak so many of them said, this is the first time we've been consulted. This is the first time that anybody's ever asked me. So this sense that suddenly people have agency, that their not just their opinion, but their experience matters, actually was transformative for many people. And I, I, I mean, I remember speaking to one person in particular in, in London, actually, a gay uh, woman who'd been in a relationship for a long time, who said, you know, I, I, when I became a Catholic, and I think she became Catholic because of Pope Francis and so on, I knew that God loved me, but I wasn't sure whether the church did. But then as a result of, of these meetings, I suddenly realized, yes, I am part of the church, you know, and the mission of the church is mine. And I think that's been the key tra- for those people who have had the experience. And Catherine's right to point out that it's dependent on so many factors. But for those people who have had that experience, that I would say has been the normative uh, experience is that that sense of, of belonging and agency, which is really quite new, I think, for many Christians, Catholics. It is. It is new. Yes. the The issue then arises that those who who enjoyed that experience, who found it very meaningful, uh, who uh, set great store by it and were very hopeful about it, their expectations may have been raised by this, and they may they may think that you know changes are coming, uh, but actually, if if you look at at the report that's come from the synod, you know, changes that some people are hoping for are still a long way off. The key change that has come from the synod, I think, is first of all that people got an opportunity, uh, or some of us did, to 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 speak, to listen to others, and then the other thing that that's happened, which is transformative in itself, is that there were these hundreds of people who sat together in Rome. And as as Austin and Jill have been saying, they, there wasn't the same kind of hierarchical setup. You know, the, the, there was an a, there was an equality in that people got their chance to speak, and you know there weren't people sort of tugging their forelock and saying, oh, you know, what the cardinal says matters more than what the ordinary Catholic has got to say during during this these sessions. So that's really important. But what will come out of it down the line? Some people may be thinking that we're going to have some amazing changes in the church. And I, I don't think that they're, you know, they're coming at speed, as some people might assume. I think there was a sense in which, um, for the very beginning of the process, 
the importance of raising up the baptismal dignity of every member of the people of God. And that was seen to be the whole from the Pope through to the newest born baby who'd been baptized. And that's uh, particularly significant when it comes to the process itself of listening and also of conversation in the spirit. Because it's it was hard, I think, for the media to really take on board what that was about. And I remember watching some of the early um, uh, briefings uh, at the Synod Assembly. And it was clear that there was a struggle because people wanted concrete um, scenarios. They wanted concrete decisions. So they kept having to be reminded that actually any synod is consultative, not deliberative. So that wasn't going to come anyway. And that at what Pope Francis had said from the beginning was that the process was the most important. And so when you're thinking of that, then the reality of that process, the coming together, reflecting on the word of God, listening to one another in the light of that, and not entering into debate and discussion, which of course is the way that many people have been educated and formed in. That's what you do, you make instant reposts. And for many of the bishops this and, and uh, the people gathered there, this was extraordinarily new. So actually engaging with that is also to, to emphasize that the Holy Spirit speaks through anyone. They don't have to have degrees. They don't have to have um, the right of ordination, but that all members there, there was a there, the need, there needed to be that openness because each one um, had a contribution to make. But it was from that basis that the contribution arose or arises, as it were, and that is to, um, as Catherine and, and Austin have both indicated. That is to lay a, a significant um, worth and value on each member of the church, but actually it's also raising up a significant responsibility that we all have in terms of making a contribution. I just wonder whether it's worth saying, because Jill mentioned a term there which may not people may not be familiar with, conversation in the spirit. And it's become a I suppose the synod method par excellence and, and, and of this synod on synodality. So before, just to, just to you know, remind of what people, what Jill was saying earlier, you know, synods used to be really just bishops who gave speeches. And then at the end of the day, they would work in small groups on amending a text and that text would then be voted on at the end. And that's how the synods worked this time round the working document which the assembly had was basically a set of questions. And those questions were questions which had arisen from the two years leading up to, to, to this process, passing from the national to the continental. And the method that they used, so as Jill was recording, rather than sitting in serried ranks, uh, people sat around tables. Somebody described it was like a, a wedding banquet layout, you know, so people seated around a table. And unlike previous sinners where you just have bishops, you would have at these tables, mostly bishops, 75%, but then you'd also have uh, others who weren't bishops. And the conversation of the spirit was the method that they used to, to basically answer the question. So the whole process was was involving was using this conversation spirit which meant that you begin and there was by the way a facilitator in each group who ensured that the method was followed everybody began well first of all you began in silence and in prayer and then everybody speaks for four minutes up to four minutes and they can say whatever they like speak from the heart in in response of course to the question and nobody responds you're just listening then there's a second uh, period of silence and the idea here is that you're listening to the resonances in your own heart to what you've heard. Uh, and then in the second round, and this is the bit that people found you know, challenging, particularly if you hadn't done it before, the idea was not to have a discussion or respond even to the content necessarily of what you'd heard, but rather to give, to share your, your reaction, to share this is the impact this has had on me or this is how I feel about this. It's, so it's much more about the, uh, uh, some people said it was about feelings. I think that's quite right. It was about feelings, but it's also about detecting, if you like, the motions of the spirit. This is where the descent thing comes in. 
then another period of silence, and then a third period. By the way, all this takes a long time. If you think everybody here has three minutes each and there's 11 people at each table, you then had this third period, which was a free-flowing discussion. And that's okay. You know, in other words, here, yes, you could have a, you could, you could respond to what you'd heard in a more. But nonetheless, the facilitator was basically saying, this is not a debate. What we're trying to do here is work out where the consensus exists. Uh, and then so they agreed on the what they called the convergences. They also agreed on where they disagreed, in other words, where there was tension or where there was divergences. And the third thing they had they were asked to uh, say was what the next steps could be or the questions that arose from this. And then they they wrote all this up. There was a secretary in each group. Then they read the fruits of their deliberation to the whole assembly. Uh, so 35 groups all read out there. Then we had a uh, discussion, individual contributions. Then they went back and rewrote their report in the light of what they had heard. So all this took about three or four days for each module. Now, this method meant that it was never, even though there were strong disagreements, absolutely there were strong disagreements, but nonetheless, it wasn't a, a, an intellectual debate. It wasn't a contest of ideas. It wasn't about persuading. It was about asking, it was about saying, well, what's, What's happening here among us? What's what is the fruit of this? Uh, where are we? And not to try and come up with some sort of negotiated agreement. It wasn't about finding a compromise. It was literally okay. Where 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 is the convergence here, and where are the divergences? And people found it enormously powerful. Uh, and I think there was a feeling that you know actually we were doing something very important there. You know, outside Israel, Gaza was raging the Ukraine war. We live in a society which is increasingly polarized. Maybe we were doing something here which the world, you know, needs. Needs because the synod process itself had been quite polarizing. I understand. You know, there were conservative parts of the church which really didn't like the idea and thought it was a kind of Trojan horse for liberalizing reform. And then there were other bishops' conferences which thought, fantastic, this is a, their local synodal way. You know, I'm thinking of, for example, the the German church, where there is a kind of a big move, I understand, to use this in odd process to potentially um, make some progress in, in areas around, you know, uh, divorce and communion and maybe even um, kind of questions around LGBT Catholics. Um, you said, actually, when we got to Rome, did those kind of that division, that polarization about the idea of whether synodality is a good thing, did most of that fall away? Do people seem to be kind of bought into the process? One of the things I think that was important and that came out earlier, and in reading it's clear it also came out um, within the um, Synod Assembly itself, is the sense of, and which may be um, a little different for some of your listeners, is the sense of of the universality of the church. And that's really vital um, because it can be very um, evident, and especially when we were reading, for example, the things, the reports from the conferences in order to write the document for the continental stage, people are coming from very different positions and from very um, different positions in the terms of what the population within their particular conferences um, uh, were raising up. And what was vital, to me, what was vital, one of the things that was vital, was that particularly the North American church and the Western European church listened to the whole of the church because it's far too easy for both those groups to be very dominant in a way that sort of, that can almost... (laughs) need to kind of new uh, neo-colonialism but that sense that we are as a universal church means that, that there's a clarity about it's not just pushing a certain line at all but it is having a feel for so for example one of the original questions and it's raised up again in the synthesis report the importance of actually looking at the reality of um, the poor and the marginalised, and that's where their agenda being vital within the understanding of the church. That was different. People raised up different minorities across the world. And why that's important to, to acknowledge, I think, is because, for example, in North America and Western Europe, 
many of our minorities are actually well-educated and articulate in other parts of the world where the minorities were raised up, they were voiceless, really quite voiceless. And I know a colleague of mine on the Theological Commission said to me at one point, uh, Gilles, I'm just interested, for example, in uh, when we're talking about the issue of women, I'm just interested in are women receiving the education to articulate their voice? So we had a range of reality and that, that acknowledging that the whole of that is the church rather than just one section of it is very important. And that's also going to be important as this synthesis document goes back to the local churches. You mentioned um, the role of women, and which is, I think, something that a lot of outside observers were kind of watching on keenly. And it, it is mentioned in the synthesis report that they, they released drawing together the kind of conclusions after the synod had finished. Um, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on on whether you think kind of we are a step closer towards the ordination of women to the diaconate, women as deacons in the Catholic Church, or is that still something that is you know, up for discussion, there are theological commissions and, and the synod hasn't really moved the dial either way. What, what's your view, Catherine? Well, I, I find the the issue of, of admission of women to the darkness incredibly frustrating. I mean, it was announced in 2016 that, that Pope Francis um, uh, was was going to have a commission look at this you know, seven years ago. And now we have the synthesis from 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 those those synod gatherings in Rome, saying theological and pastoral research on the access of women to the diaconate should be continued. Well, goodness me, how much longer is this going to take? It's I it, I think most women find that kind of extraordinary that it's just taking so long. Why is it taking so long? And one thing they said actually in the in the synthesis report was that the two commissions, because there have been two commissions looking in the into the history of the diaconate, uh, the female diaconate at the beginning of the church, because a lot so much of this turns on you know what happened in the early church and so on. Um, those have not been made public, and so the the report asks specifically that they may be, be be published, be made public by the time of the concluding assembly next year in October twenty four. Um, on that question of admission of women to the diaconate, that was where there was the most debate or, if you like, the final paragraphs on that in the document were the ones that attracted the greatest opposition, although it was actually no more than 20%. But then to be clear, what people were agreeing to was what was in the paragraphs, which was capturing the state of the conversation. And the state of the conversation is one still of quite strong disagreement. In other words, many people strongly in favour uh, some strongly against. I think that I think one of the interesting things about this process, though, is that how this particular question took an interesting turn in the course of the assembly, which I'm sure at the beginning of the assembly nobody could have anticipated. And it was that the question of the diaconate itself was opened up. In other words, what is the diaconate? One of the interesting things was that so many people said actually the diaconate which was sorry this is really kind of uh, intra-ecclesial stuff but it was restored by Paul VI following uh, the Second Vatican Council again we know there were deacons in the church uh, as what's called the permanent diaconate so we have in the Catholic Church men mostly married who are permanently as it were deacons they're not on the way to becoming priests the problem is that the diaconate also remains part of a stage towards priesthood in other words before you get ordained as priests you're ordained as deacons and the objection was made and it was made actually very powerfully by by deacons themselves and one in particular to say actually that the problem is the clericalization if you like of the diaconate if you look at the diaconate in the early church it was all about the service of the community and the poor and so on so one of the concrete suggestions in the document is that perhaps the diaconate be stripped out as a transitional uh, thing to the priesthood. Now, if you declericalize the diaconate, does that then change the nature of women's accession to the diaconate? Because a lot of women themselves say, you know, we want to avoid the risks of clericalization. Now, it might all sound like this is, you know, dancing on the head of a pin, but actually the discussion itself, it, it is very interesting what it surfaces. And I'm pretty sure that by the time we do get to October 2024, that question will be a lot clearer. Mm -hmm. I think also, too, again, it's seeing uh, this question 
and um, that was helpful at Boston because I was going to raise that point about there have been two commissions already. Uh, but to see this again, against in the context of a wider question of a women's participation in leadership, and that uh, for the universal church is the bigger issue. Um, now, in some parts of the world, that's uh, that's very clear. Um, you, have, I mean, I know, for example, in the states, at least three women chancellors of dioceses, um, one of whom is uh, religious and the other two are lay people. So it, it just it gives you a sense of that's in some parts. Of, I mean, and a chancellor in the diocese is a, 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 a really a very substantial position in the church. Other parts of the world, there, as I, let's come back to the point that I made earlier, there's a, a real push for education for women so that they can move into positions of leadership within the church in different ways. So again, it's this sense of how do we move forward together in a way that is, that is helpful. And this, this suggestion that I recall being made of, the, of looking at the diaconate in its original understanding may be part and parcel of how that would help to move forward. Um, I, I do recall um, when I was um, in Scotland before I, I transitioned across to the uh, to Canada. A friend of mine was an Anglican deaconess um, who was very committed to her role and re- received significant pressure to go forward for ordination after the epistle. But she didn't want to do that because she knew, she wanted to be what she felt her vocation was. And so in a sense, having a feel for bringing these two things apart might be a helpful way forward. I don't know. I I was quite struck by a passage in the report, which which said, based on what you said there, Jill, about this is broader than just whether women can or cannot be deacons, because, you know, it said there's an urgent need to ensure that women can participate in decision-making processes and take on roles of responsibility and the Holy Father has significantly increased the number of women in responsibility in the Roman Curia, and the same should happen at other levels of the life of the church. So as you say, that's that's about non-clerical positions, maybe chances and dioceses, other officials, you know, dicasteries in the Vatican and various other things. You know, th- this seems to be something that's a rare example where actually we're not just thinking about it. This seems like this is a decision. The Catholic Church is trying to become less male-centric and and separately to the question of women's ordination to various orders of ministry there is a kind of consensus that we need to introduce women to the life of the church in other ways is that fair yeah uh, sorry somebody else want to come in well i just say i think it's important the lens with which we view this because it is typical of europeans and americans to view this question through the lens of equality and justice which is a perfectly good lens with which to view it but other parts of the world will see it differently and i think one of the things that the synod assembly if you like decided together it was something that that i sense was a, a a consensus in the room is that we start with the mission of the church so that the mission you know the famous phrase the church doesn't have a mission the mission has a church and the church needs to reconfigure its ministries in every age in order to carry out the mission entrusted to it by Jesus Christ. Now, it's a clear, um, if you like, the the new thing that the Spirit is calling on the church to do is synodality, which means the participation of all in the life and mission of the church. In other words, everybody taking responsibility for their baptismal dignity. Now, one of the questions, to me at least, that I still have not clear in my own mind after all this uh, listening is if you if you ordain women to the diaconate or indeed if you expand the clergy in any way right do you make it easier or more difficult for all the the the, the ordinary baptized to assume the, the, the their responsibility for the life of the mission of the church i just raise it as a question and i'm aware that that question in a way is, is the, the key question is not is it right or wrong that women be you know deacons eh? but rather what is the what does the church what does the church need at this time? And also what's happening? Because as Jill was just saying, it's been very obvious that women are already occupying leadership positions in the church, that parishes are being run by women. I mean, we had this in the Amazon Synod in 2019, where, you know, it's formidable 
leadership of women in, 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 in remote areas, for example. How does the church recognize what is happening, see that the Spirit is pouring out gifts and recognize those and give people the authority that they need to carry out the mission, rather than necessarily trying to squeeze everything into the existing clerical lay model? Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. Could, could we briefly touch on, on another issue that I know is, is of interest to lots of people beyond the walls of the Catholic Church? I'm afraid it is quite clerical. It's about celibacy of the priesthood. That's also mentioned in the synthesis report, something to be further considered. Um, is there, again, is there, was there, did, did you sense much movement on that issue? Or are we still kind of entrenched in our particular positions and, and factions on that uh, what's your what's your take on on the issue of, of priestly celibacy and, and where it stands after the synod well the i mean the, the, the synthesis report does say um that uh that pr- the value of priestly celibacy is appreciated uh, as a profound witness to christ and I think there are many Catholics who do appreciate celibacy of their priests. That the a a a priest who is uh, learnt to live with celibacy, who is completely committed to his vocation, uh, is it's he's quite a remarkable figure, and and I think many of us have met priests who who are also dedicated in that way that that we really appreciate that that model of priesthood however i think that that that, that you can also see that sometimes it it sets it sets priests apart in a way it it seems to encourage the sense that they are of a different caste that they are a special caste. It, it it it's a bond, if you like, between them, and that isn't always a good thing. So it it has both its benefit benefit and its great great problems. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not sure that everybody thinks in the Catholic Church oh, oh, celibacy is something that we you know we can we can, we should do away with straight away and no longer have a celibate priesthood, but anyway it's it, it's something that that could be maintained by some and others need maintain it. It's a it's a it's 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 a it's a form of discipline, and it it it, it isn't absolutely essential. But I mean, for example, the you know the the members of religious communities, it might make more sense for them to remain um, celibates, uh, and that would be fine. And so people could commit themselves to that uh, at the same time as us having a, a a celibate priesthood. I, I'm not sure that that there are many many Catholics who think this is the the most important issue in the church. Austin, you're nodding your head there. Yeah, I mean, you were asking about kind of what happened at the Synod and was there any movement. I didn't sense any particular significant movement on this. I didn't sense that it was a particularly important issue in the Synod. What it says in the Synthesis Report quite accurately sums up the discussion. You know, its value is appreciated by all, sorry, celibacy is appreciated by all as richly prophetic and a profound witness to Christ and so on. But some ask whether it should necessarily be a disciplinary obligation. In other words, is there not room in the Western church for another kind of priest who would be who would be married? In other words, a married, ordaining married men, uh, for example, uh, deacons. Definitely that question, that, that runs on in the Catholic Church. And remember, by the way, I always have to introduce this discussion by pointing out that, that a large part of the Catholic Church, or a significant part of the Catholic Church, has already got uh, a, a married priest. That's to say the so-called Eastern churches, which are in communion with Rome. But, um, so, uh, or indeed form- ex-Anglicans I was just about ordinary. to say, <laughs> or former Anglicans and so on. So it's not like th- this is completely new. But I I think my sense is that if you look at uh, where the church is, as it were, mainstream in the world, so the strong, you know, Latin America and you know, Africa and so on, I sense no appetite for uh, for changing the discipline of celibacy, priestly celibacy. 
I'd like to move to a different topic because I think that one's been help, helpfully um, covered, really, by Austin and Catherine. But I'm wondering if your listeners might be interested in having a sense of the ecumenical dimension. Because this is one which has been from the very beginning um, uh, an important feature of the whole synodal process. At the local level, people were asked about their involvements with other churches, etc. This is one of the questions that originally originally raised up. And the ecumenical dimension has been very important in terms of those who were invited to come to the Synod Assembly this time. But it would be, I think, again, vital to raise up that there have always been an ecumenical group of people invited to every synod of bishops since the first one um, that inaugurated by Paul VI. This was the sense of the the need to, um, just as there was at Vatican II, there were ecumenical observers. Um, The other part, though, in that... Um, and people were part and parcel of tables, etc., and listening and, and such like. The other part of that, though, I think that is very important, is the role of the Eastern churches that was raised up um, during this synodal process in a way that hasn't been um, a, 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 that that has that has, as it were, in the past, not been so prominent. And why I raised that is I'm conscious when I was doing some research in Rome in 2016-17, that I was, um, I went to meet with people at the the then Congregation for the Eastern Churches. And generally in speaking with them, there was a feeling that people felt very much second-class citizens. Now, after this, this process and this assembly, I don't think that's the case. And it certainly has been, has been the case that Pope Francis has, uh, made a particular uh, push towards an inclusion there that I think is, again, vital for the life of the church. Um, but for people to know that the ecumenical dimension is significant to the way the uh, Catholic Church is thinking about itself at the moment, and indeed Pope Francis raised up again uh, during the course of the days around the Synod Assembly, the importance of us looking again at Ut Unum Sint, which is a document that Pope John Paul II raised up, um, really looking at how would other how do other churches, Christian churches, see the primacy. So there is a sense in which that is very much part and parcel, humanism is very much part and parcel of the synodal process at the time. Has there been much examination of how other churches do synods and councils and deliberative processes i mean people will be a lot of people know we've covered in this podcast you know the anglican synod that just completed here in london but it's a very different body it's parliamentary in style there's election there's votes there's elections um uh, it's it's very different whereas you know the synod we're talking about here in, in rome ultimately the pope kind of remains top of the hierarchy and and he can agree veto disagree it's it's a different kind of thing. Uh, Austin, you wanted to come in on that? Well, one? I just say I was at, uh, it was now two or three months ago at Durham. There was a fascinating meeting on what's called a, a receptive ecumenism, which is this ecumenical way of interrelating where we're receiving the gifts or recognizing the gifts that the spirit has poured out in the different traditions and how we can receive them. And it was all the mainline Christian denominations in the UK represented. And they were asked, the whole topic was in a all the churches were asked to share about how in their own tradition, they make decisions, you know, they work out what the spirit's asking of them and so on. And it was completely fascinating because of course you see that all the churches have these very, very different synodal traditions. Now, you just mentioned the kind of parliamentary Anglican model where differences are settled by votes. One party wins, the other side loses, and it becomes law and so on. Then you've got, you know, the Quakers who sort of can spend years and years over making a decision, and but they, they come to this consensus and then they see, and so on. The Methodist tradition of, uh, they have this kind of, of deliberation of a particular kind of a way of discussing things. I must say, I was, I was riveted. But the thing that fascinated me most of all was to see that they were all saying, actually what the catholic church is doing here is really important for all of us you know in other words we all need to rediscover 
um, as it were, the truth that the Spirit guides the church. And we will need to understand how in practice to develop m- mechanisms uh, by which to do that. And more than one person sort of speculated that we can imagine in the future uh, some kind of synod involving all the churches, you know, uh, we, because after all, the challenges that we face are, are identical. But can you imagine a synod in which we're all gathered together? Maybe the Pope presides, but, you know, it's not binding. Um, and I must say, I came away very encouraged from that. I think one one thing that um, uh, that that one can be particularly optimistic about is that while uh, that there's quite a lot of uh, progress still to be made and certain issues about ecumenism, for example, um, uh, inter-church communion, the reception, the receiving of, of Holy Communion together by, say, married couples who belong to different denominations. So there's that kind of issue that, that sort of is solved uh, in terms of ecumenism. But I think the thing that's really uh, very, very uh, hopeful is the way in which uh, the different Christian denominations now work together so so much more effectively in terms of common witness to the world. And uh, this synod started, I think I'm right also in saying, in, on October the 4th, wasn't it? Which was also um, the day when uh, Pope Francis' recent document on um, climate change came out, Laudate Deum. And uh, the, church, the Christian churches are working together, I think, very effectively now on on, so, on something such as the environment. And we're going to see that at COP28 in the next few weeks. So that's a real uh, area of optimism, I think, for all of us. I think also, to the vigil that took place before the retreat <laughs> began um, for those members of the Assembly was helpful because, again, it brought in a major... Uh, figures from different Christian denominations. But one um, example I think I'd like to raise up, because I think this is is, is helpful. Um, I'm a member of the Canadian Council of Churches, sat on their theological commission for a number of years, and then was part of the executive, and now I'm back on the theological commission. But as part of the early stage of the synodal process, um, when we're doing things in the local areas, I got in contact with the secretary and I said, would the executive like to meet? Because they knew, they knew me to, to, to facilitate something. And we'll, we'll have a meeting of our group in the same sort of way as there would be a local meeting within the parish, which we did. And, they, uh, the, and we followed the same practice that Austin indicated earlier, which is the same practice that's been going on from the very beginning in terms of the three rounds, etc. But one of the things that um, uh, one member raised, who is actually the moderator of the um, Presbyterian Church here, she said, this is very much the way we operate, isn't it? She said, because we work on the basis of consensus. That's how we come together in terms of of making any kind of statement, suggestion, whatever, it's on the basis of, of consensus. She said, and as you know too, it's hard. It's not easy. And I think that that's a really helpful thing to bear in mind, you know, that we we walk together as the whole movement of this is about walking together. But it's not necessarily easy. But we're committed to it. That's in a sense the important part. Perhaps worth adding that you know I, I sensed anyway that there's a there's a real determination to create um, mechanisms of participation, discernment, and so on, which allow the church to be open to the new thing that the Spirit is calling us to, but to move through consensus. There is no desire for any kind of Anglican type parliamentary model, and the reason actually has been explained to me very well by certain Anglican bishops, which is you have. A, a division, like at the moment you have over same-sex blessings in the Church of England. You've got, you know, your right, your left, the people who want change, the people who say under no circumstances. They battle it out over many years. The division deepens. Finally, it's resolved, or rather not resolved, 
in the debate in 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 synod you get more or less a 50 50 vote one side wins the other side loses the differences are never resolved and they're never transcended they only deepen and then the church of england with its extraordinary genius for accommodating difference then creates new structures but in fact what happens is a progressive transformation a fragmentation over time i think what the catholic church is trying to do is to say you know perfectly acknowledging by the way that it has not been synodal in its exercise of authority but is trying to create here a model if you like faithful to the early church which says we we it is all about discovering what the spirit is asking of us and we move when we've come together to see that and consensus not unanimity because that doesn't exist consensus is one of the signs in which we recognize that and by the way the document itself was uh, even though i can tell you there was some pretty strong disagreements within that synod hall but that document received on the whole 95 96 97 type percent uh, uh, voting in favour, which in itself is a sign that this thing is working, even though we're just at the very early stages of it. Since we're on it, and I think it would be remiss of me not to touch on this before we come to an end shortly, um, again, another a kind of striking feature of, I think, Pope Francis's pontificate is, has been a kind of change of language of tone around um, uh, gay Catholics, LGBT people. Um, do you sense, is there any consensus forming through this inaudible process about whether there is any kind of reform coming down the track, um, was was is it just a question of kind of welcome and language, and or was there something more substantive brewing? Do you think? I think Jill. one of the things that is important is that there's a clear ongoing desire to emphasise the church's bottom line in terms of uh, an, you might say a theological anthropology that every human person, every human person is made in the image and likeness of God and therefore has an intrinsic dignity, worth and value. And I think that that's a really helpful emphasis for a starting point. Austin? Yeah, I mean, I'd just add that in terms of what happened in the assembly, I would say that's one issue which didn't make progress. Uh, because, in fact, what happened was even the term LGBT was controversial. There were some parts of the world which, f f who saw even those letters as being a kind of an ideological imposition on them. And by the way, and that has to be heard. And it was very important, I think, for sort of more Western liberal types to listen to the experience of being in the developing world and feeling like all this is being imposed by international agencies and so on. Now, you know, in other words, we didn't even get to the point where we could agree on on language. And so therefore, I would say the discussion around sort of the, the gay question or inclusion of, of gay people didn't really didn't really get off uh, the ground. But on the other hand, let's just remember, this was a synod about synodality. We weren't there to discuss, for example, the church's teaching on sexuality or, you know, Christian anthropology. Um, so I, I, I don't sense that uh, if that discussion is going to happen synodally, it's going to happen in the future. It's not going to happen in, during uh, this process. But there was some really important listening went on and some great kind of anecdotes, which I'm probably not free to speak about, but, you know, where people really were exposed to views that, if you like, they would never normally be exposed to. And that in itself is a kind of achievement, is it not? Hmm. And just lastly, then, looking forward, um, there'll be another gathering in Rome in a year's time in October next year to kind of complete this synodical round I think if you can call it that um what do we expect is going to happen between now and then and and is that synod going to focus more on actual kind of policy change or is it going to be more about listening and, and shaping a culture Catherine uh, I, to be honest I think Austin's probably better better place to to say much about this than 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 me I think one of the things that the church is going to need to try and do is is to keep sort of ordinary Catholics on board, really, because by the time it comes around again, they might be thinking, goodness me, is this just becoming some endless bureaucratic process? How does this affect me? So they're, they're going to have to find some way to capture people's imaginations. But actually, on the process, I think Austin's probably better placed than me to dis to discuss that. Well, well, I just want to agree strongly with what Catherine's just said. I mean, there's a real issue here of 
ordinary Catholics who were involved right at the beginning and were delighted to be involved, feeling in many cases that this has now left them, it's happening, it's somewhere far off and it doesn't affect them. So I think there's a, there's a huge challenge communicationally, by the way, as well as in terms of actual engagement of the local church. We're waiting at the moment to hear from the Synod Secretary about how they expect the document, the synthesis document, to be used over the next year. But what I can say is this, and I've been saying this in talks I've been giving in parishes over the last uh, week or so, it has something like, I think, Jill, isn't it, 80 proposals uh, mm-hmm. in the document. Yeah, there's 20 commissions of it. There's a heck of a lot in the document which has been opened up. Okay, Now, there are some concrete suggestions, and let me just give you one, uh, just to pick it out, because I thought it was fascinating. There's a, there's a suggestion in the document that the ministry of lector, reader in the parish, be expanded to include preaching. That means ordinary lay people, you know, men and women preaching. Now, I've said to a couple of priests, if somebody in your parish felt the call to, you know, to, to develop this charism of preaching, would you be? And they say, yeah, sure, you know, great. Uh, so one of the things that could happen is you might just see people getting on with some of this stuff and then reporting back to the synod. We have a great expression in the Catholic Church, ad experimentum. It's not yet allowed, but you go ahead and do it and kind of report back. And I think what the synod secretariat would love is for the church to kind of get on with implementing a lot of this stuff and then feeding it back to them so that next October, when they, yes, they are, the idea is next October, we come to a solid conclusion about all these topics, concrete proposals made to the Pope. And that will be informed much more, I suspect, by experience than by these lofty commissions, which we'll also need to meet, of course. Hmm. I I also think that, um, I mean, clearly the, the synthesis document is going to the conferences. Um, my sense is in order to assist uh, the local level, uh, they're going to need to think in terms of how can we raise up some really key things. And I think it would be helpful if it was done around what Austin just sort of said. In a sense, it's a form of subsidiarity, looking at it and saying, actually, these things we we can get on with in our local area. Uh, we don't have to wait for, for another assembly, etc. We can get on with these things. Identifying those and then bringing them before the people in the local areas, I think, would be ideal. But to think that you're... I mean, I read... Because I read documents, don't I? That's what I do. Apart <laughs> from anything else. But to think in terms of that, that your local Catholic is going to read through 40 pages is really uh, to be in cloud cuckoo land. But if, as it were, you do raise up this, this some specific realities that any locality can engage with, then, you know, they can move up, move ahead on it. And there are a number of things. I mean, what does it mean in, in, our, in our locality, for example, to, about standing with the poor, which also includes care for the earth, and putting the poor at the centre of what we're about, you know, that can be something that can be really engaged in by a local community. And who for them are their poor in their area? And that is very central to the process, as it were, to be to moving forward. I mean, there are various commissions, as, as they suggested, experts being this, that and the other. But that sense of, uh, of the importance, for example, of uh, sensitivity of listening to people like victims and survivors of, of, of abuse. We haven't raised that point, but that's vital. And in localities, that needs to be looked at. Where do we have the possibility that someone can come and say, look, it may not be clerical abuse, but it may be abuse of some form or another. How can we accompany people in that in that sense? That's also to a local issue. Um, uh, one very very concrete specific recommendation: church meetings, parish council meetings, whatever should be should begin. Well, either they could yeah, use first the first of all, they're mandatory. Um, now. Well, that, that exactly. There's a call for them to be made mandatory because many parishes don't have them. But secondly, that they begin each meeting with you know twenty minutes of of scripture, you know, and prayer. Uh, in other words, you know, our meetings have become too corporate and business like. We need to reroute them in in prayer. Things like that. The document's full of stuff like that, which I think can be readily embraced. And one final very difficult question, because we must draw this to a close. I'm aware I've taken a lot of your time. Uh, It's very difficult to predict the future. But if you had to imagine where the church will be in 50 years time, do you think we'll look back at this process 
and see it akin to a Vatican II, a kind of hinge point in Catholic history? Or or is it or is it not going to be not going to last? At, you know, once Pope Francis is long gone, are we going to be? Is it going to be just a distant memory? Would anyone like to to chance their arm on that one? I'd say yes. I mean, in terms of your reference to Vatican II, I'd say it's another move forward from Vatican II. It's not something that's Pope Francis's own thing, but it's clearly rooted, um, and it will have significant effect. Not least because um, he's passionate that the spirit will work, will move, <laughs> and that if we are only a little bit open, and there's clear signs of that occurring in different ways. Catherine, what's your what's your view on that question? Well, one of the things that strikes me is that in the past, people in in this country, anyway, in Britain, have often said that uh, the 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 Catholic Church in a way, waits for the Church of England to be a laboratory and sees where it goes with certain things. And it feels to me as if the, the, the Catholic Church has this time has be, be, been confident enough to be a bit of a laboratory itself with this process. And I think, uh, I think you know, the, 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 the experimental tests have shown that this is something that, that that works and should should continue so i think it is a it is you know quite a major moment yes last but not least austin is this another vatican too well i think people will look back on it and say this is the concrete application of vatican too and i think people will say what took you so long <laughs> <laughs> well there's a lovely place to finish thank you so much for all your time um, and for your uh, contributions and your reflections and expertise it's been really interesting listening in as you guys ex- unpack that for us so thank you Catherine, jill austin um uh, do look up their various books and, and writings elsewhere if you want to go deeper onto all of this i'll try and put some links in the podcast description but thanks everyone else for listening as well and um, we'll be back with another episode um next week bye-bye That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget, you can also subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get each new episode sent automatically to your phone or tablet week by week. If you've got any questions, feedback, or want to suggest a topic we should explore, you can email me at tswyatt at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast.